Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, who lived from 1700 to 1760, has been called by some the rich young ruler who said yes. He had a Lutheran and pietistic upbringing. This is post-Reformation. He's most often, though, associated with the Moravian Church. Now, I won't give you his whole biography, but from a young age, he had an interest in things like theology and pietism. But as a rising ruler, he was directed to give his time towards things that befit somebody who would serve in the position of government. For instance, he studied law at the University of Wittenberg. Well, there are different things that happened in his life that would stir his affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of the big points of chronology comes in 1722. In 1722, he gets married and he uses his family's wealth, which was a large amount of wealth, to buy his grandmother's estate, which was a very large estate, at Berthelsdorf. And later that year, he would have an opportunity to house refugees, these Christians who were fleeing persecution. They were from Moravia, and some, I believe, were from Bohemia. They were those who were the followers of the practices of the uh, early reformer Jan Hus, and they were being persecuted, and Zinzendorf opened his estate to them. And what started off with some over the course of a decade or so would become hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of persecuted Christians that he would house at his estate. And by 1732, according to Stephen Nichols, they would begin sending out missionaries from there to other places, places like Greenland and places like St. Thomas. Now in the history of the church, there would be those like Zinzendorf who would use their property for the service and the cause of Christ, but there would also be those who would sell their property for the cause of Christ and for the good of His people. What we have in the passage before us is an example of the latter. I've often thought in my mind, when I meet with um, married couples in the church, whether it's just to catch up or whether it's for marital counseling or so on, whatever it might be, I I imagine oftentimes Um, wanting that couple, however tightly they're holding hands going into that meeting, my hope is that they will leave that meeting holding hands all the more tightly. There's a sense in which when we come to this passage, my hope for you and me is that as we come to this passage, however loosely we are holding on to things, that we will hold on to them even more loosely in light of what we study in this passage. That as we come to this passage, we will have a right view of possessions and resources that God has entrusted into our possession. And if you are going to hold things more lightly and not too tightly, you have to see, I would argue, God, yourself, and possessions rightly. You have to see God as the owner. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You have to see yourself as a temporary manager of what He has entrusted to you. And you have to see things, possessions, money, resources as a temporary stewardship for which you and I are going to be accountable. We are not to live our lives in this state of constantly trying to accrue stuff. 
Nor are we to be like the wicked and lazy servant in Matthew 25 who took that talent, likely a talent of silver that he was given, and he was so afraid of losing that talent that what did he do? He buried it. He wasn't like those other stewards who used what they were given. So we are not supposed to just accrue stuff, and we're not just supposed to bury what we have out of fear of losing it. We are to leverage what we've been given for the glory of God. And the hope in our mind is to stand before the Lord Jesus on that day and hear him say, like it said in Matthew 25, verse 21, well, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We'll get there, but first let's create a little bit of context as we make our way into the text. You'll remember in the verses immediately preceding our text, the church had gathered together to pray. Peter and John had threats of forthcoming bodily harm coming their way, essentially, when they received threats from the Sanhedrin if they continued to preach, in Jesus' name, the resurrection of the dead. They go to the church, they update the church as to what had happened, and what does the church do? They go immediately to prayer. They pray, and one of the things that they prayed was that the Lord might encourage them to speak his word with boldness. That they wouldn't stop, that they wouldn't shrink back, that they would continue to proclaim Christ. And you might recall that the Lord provided a rapid response to that prayer. The room where they were gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of the Lord with boldness. So we see in those verses some of the immediate effects of the Holy Spirit. The servants of the living God are empowered to continue to speak about Christ with courage. But what follows, you might say, in the verses before us are some additional effects of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the lives of His people. We begin in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, where we read, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So the first thing I want you to see in light of verse 32 is that the same Holy Spirit who begot boldness in the people of God in the preceding verses is the same Holy Spirit who brings about oneness in His people. And this is a rather astounding work of unity, especially given the multitude of those who believed. Indeed, it was a multitude that had believed. You have a number of believers right now, and we've talked about this before, of about 15,000, maybe 20,000 people who have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is an amazing description that they would be of one heart and one soul. In other words, in their thinking, as a man thinks in his heart, and in their affections, they were united. They were united. This unity was not uniformity, and it was far deeper than some sort of external conformity. This was a oneness that was wrought from within. They were, as Albert Barnes has noted, attached to the same things. And you might say, well, what were they attached to? I think we get a glimpse of what they were attached to in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Remember, they devoted themselves, the early church. They committed themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. 
So as a people of God, they're committed to things like apostolic instruction. They want to be under sound doctrine. They are spending time with one another. They are committed to breaking bread and remembering the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and Him suffering and dying for our sins. And they were committed to being together and praying together. They were, to use one author's illustration, like a hundred pianos all tuned to the same fork, which then, as a result, meant that they were tuned to one another. If you go through the book of Acts, we've seen this and we're going to continue to see this. Unity was a mark of this fledgling early church. Just to give you some examples quickly, Acts chapter 1 verse 14, we're told that the 120 or so were in one accord in prayer and supplication. In Acts chapter 2 verse 46, we saw that the church continued daily with one accord. In Acts chapter 4, recently, in our recent study, we saw that the church prayed with one accord. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. In Acts chapter 5, verse 12, we are going to read the statement, they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And that's the kind of language that's used here. The early church was unified in their thinking and in their affections. But I want you to know, we're also going to see in the book of Acts, that that unity is going to be assaulted. And it's going to be assaulted early on. And I want to remind you that even in the first century, among healthy churches, take like a healthy church like the Church of Philippi, which was by and large a healthy church, yet Paul is exhorting them over and over again to be unified. Some examples of that. Philippians 1.27, the Apostle Paul tells them, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he's going to emphasize it more in the beginning of chapter 2. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and that language there could be since there is consolation in Christ. And he goes on, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Remember a little bit later on, in Acts chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, there are these two women, godly women, that he pleads with publicly to be unified. He writes there, he says, I implore Eodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion... That word there that's used in the Greek may refer to someone's personal name. Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I say all that to say unity was a mark of the early church, but unity had to be fought for. The early church had to strive for it. The early church had to seek to protect it. So I don't want you to think of it as just some sort of utopia where everybody's always fine with one another. No, there's a sense of that in this text. But it was something that had to be preserved, fought for, and protected. I'll give you what I think is an appropriate application. If you were to say, okay, well, how do we then do that? How do we fight for that? How do we strive for that here as a local church? I would say the route to unity is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Sound doctrine. Being under sound doctrine. We are to be united in the essential truths of the gospel. And I think we should be united in sound doctrine. The early church was that. 
They were united in fellowship. They were with one another. Right? That, that's going to lead to unity, especially if you work through some disharmony together and you get to the other side of it. I think it breeds a kind of even deeper unity. They were breaking bread together. And we've talked about how that likely points to them not only breaking bread in the kind of communal meal, but remembering the Lord's table, the Lord's supper in the midst of it. They were remembering the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what united them, his shed blood and his work on the cross. And they were praying together. This is a route to unity. If you don't want unity, then you'd say something like this. Okay, I don't take doctrine too seriously. I don't fellowship with Christians often. Celebrating the Lord's Supper is hit or miss for me. And I don't think I pray with other Christians outside of the pastoral prayer or meals with Christians. If that's kind of your disposition, don't expect too much unity. I mean, if you wanted to make a pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving, and I don't know much about pumpkin pie, but I know you're going to need pumpkin. I know you're going to need things like you know, sugar. You're going to need things probably like flour. I don't know, cinnamon, things like that. But if you start to have pumpkin pie and you get pumpkin and all of a sudden you add cabbage and parsley, it's not going to come out the way you want it to come out. It's kind of like that when, it's, when you're thinking about unity. If you want unity, you've got to apply the means that God has appropriated. There's a unity that we have by virtue of being born again and sharing the same spirit, the same Father, the same Lord, and so on. But it is to be strived to be preserved practically. Strived for to preserve it practically. Well, they had unity not only inwardly, but they also had it outwardly. Look at the second half of verse 32. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. This is further evidence of the work of God's Spirit. You might say that in their natural state, they had a disposition towards selfishness. Their selfishness was like a big block of ice, you might say, that was melted away by the work of God's Spirit. What they had, they were willing to share. And they likely thought of Old Testament texts like the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. They likely saw themselves as stewards more than they even saw themselves as owners. And if they saw themselves as stewards, they would be ready to use what they had for the service of God's purposes and for the aid of his blood-bought children. Now I want you to see here, and I think this is important to note, this disposition that they had, it didn't result from like an apostolic decree. It's not like Peter came out one day and said, okay, private property is abolished. Make sure you commit all of your possessions to communal use. No personal ownership continued. You see that very clearly in the next chapter. If you were to go ahead to Acts chapter 5, verse 4, Peter tells Ananias, with regards to the sale of his property, he said, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it, the proceeds of the sale, was it not in your control? So what we have here in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and in verses 34 and 35, is not the abolition of ownership. I want you to see this as what it is. This is a spirit-wrought disposition where God's people looked at what they owned and they thought, what's mine is yours. This is about disposition and not dispossession when you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I think Matthew Henry put it well when he wrote, They did not take away others' property, but they were indifferent to it. They did not call it their own because they had in affection forsaken all for Christ. 
He also goes on to note, no marvel that they were of one heart and one soul when they sat so loose to the wealth of this world. So what you have in verse 32 and verses 34 and 35 is not some early form of socialism, some early form of communism. It's not that at all. It was not planned, at least by men. It was not prescribed. It was not forced or enforced. It was voluntary, wrought by the Spirit of God. We'll see more about that in a moment, but before we get there, we have a further description of God's work among the apostles and the people in verse 33 where we read, And with great power... The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I would encourage you to look at verse 33 and see two sets of words um, that help us get our minds around this text. The words great power and great grace. First, we see the words great power, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus promised his apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that when they waited in Jerusalem, he would endue them with power from on high so that they might be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, what's amazing about that is they had already seen him alive. They were witnesses to his resurrection, but that wasn't going to be enough. They needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit if they went out and proclaimed the reality, we've seen the risen Christ, we've eaten with Him, we know that He's alive, but they didn't have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they would have shriveled up. The Spirit made the difference. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Christ. Let us not forget that Acts 4.33, what I just read to you, follows on the heels of Acts 4.29. The church prayed for boldness, and in Acts 4.31, they were filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. So yes, there is an intrinsic power in God's truth, but we act awry if we think that if we proclaim it in our own might or strength, we do well. It's not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit that we are to proclaim His truth. And I also want you to note here that there was great grace upon them all. I think that language speaks to the church. That word for grace here... Um, Charis is the Greek word that's used. Again, it's got the adjective megale in front of it. So it's great grace, even as great power came upon the church. And it uh, could be rendered as favor, could be rendered as grace. I think the idea here is that while the apostles were given great power to continue to bear witness of Jesus' resurrection, God was also granting ongoing grace, spiritual empowerment, His favor, so that his people would be provided with strength for spiritual advancement to do his will. Great grace was upon them all. In other words, God in his gracious favor continued to empower them to use them, as in some of the examples that we're going to see. Before we go on, though, I want to go back for a moment uh, to the first half of verse 33 and see how the apostles were empowered to keep preaching Christ despite threats. How is that gag order working for the Sanhedrin? Don't talk anymore in Jesus' name. Don't, we don't want to hear anything about the resurrection or about Jesus. It wasn't stopping them. They were empowered to preach God's word with boldness. They kept proclaiming the name that they were forbidden to proclaim. So I just want to ask you, by way of application, when was the last time that you prayed that God would encourage you to speak his word with boldness? When was the last time you asked for that? 
Not, you know you should ask for that. When is the last time you were kneeling in prayer, or you had your hands raised in prayer, and you actually asked God, God, would you help me to not shrink away from opportunities to share Christ? Now, you know if you desire to share Christ, there are going to be some moments where you just feel so empowered and it's easy, and there's going to be some moments where you feel tempted to shrink back from it. And I want to encourage you, speak Christ in those moments where it's easy, and I want to encourage you to speak Christ in those moments where it's difficult. I had one of those moments a, a few Sundays not too long ago where we were here for a while and then we were at a family event and we, uh, we were hungry and it was getting late and we went uh, to a restaurant to have something to eat. And uh, as my custom is, when I go into a place to eat, I often will use the restroom. I go into the restroom, wash my hands and so on. And there's a man next to me and he starts to motion as though he's coming to my side of the sink and then he motions backwards and he kind of apologizes for that stumbling or whatever it was. And he's like, sorry, it's been a long day. And so I tell him, I'm like, hey, when you, and, uh, when you and I are at a restaurant at this time, you know it's been a long day for us. Um, and he says, yeah, my wife wanted me to come to this restaurant. And then, as I'm getting ready to leave the, the restroom, he uses the Lord's name in vain. Just like, like out of nowhere. And it took me by surprise. And now I'm somebody who, who I, I want to seize opportunities. I want to go through the gospel. I want to go through the law. I want to tell you the good news of what Jesus has done, that we deserve wrath, but God has given grace to sinners who believe the gospel and so on. And in that moment, I'm like, okay, this is awkward. It's a restroom. I'm about to walk out of the room, but he just used the name of my Lord in vain. I'm like, I got to say something. And I don't know how extensive the conversation could be because he's probably going to leave the restroom in a minute right now and so on. And so I'm about to open the door and I reference to him, I say, you know, excuse me, sir, I just have to say, you reference my Lord, and I love him. He died for my sins. And I said something else at the, at the end of it briefly, just to say something. I wish I would have said more in so many ways. And then the man says to me, amen. And I was like, what? It took me by surprise. I'm like, wow, maybe this man either has a Christian background or was in church earlier in that day. And he's like, I can't believe in God's providence. I just used the Lord's name in vain with another Christian in the bathroom. So even if it's not what you would want it to be, and it wasn't what I would want it to be, if I can go back, maybe I would want it to be something different, but just seizing those moments, even if it's awkward, just to bear witness of the Savior that you love. But don't think you could do it in your own strength. Pray that the Lord would encourage you and strengthen you to speak His word with boldness, to seize those opportunities that come before us. Well, that leads us to some, um, I think, amazing examples of how the grace of God was on that early church through some of the examples of generosity that took place. First, we're going to see a general description, verses 34 and 35. Then we're going to see a specific description, specific example, verses 36 and 37. In verses 34 and 35, we read, Now there, or nor was there anyone among them who lacked... For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. So this is evidence, I would argue, of great grace being upon the church. Look at the beginning of verse 34. I think it's found in that statement. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. That's amazing. You have about... 15,000, maybe 20,000 people here who did not lack. What did they not lack? This is an important qualifier. They didn't lack necessities. I'm sure they lacked some wants. It's not that everybody got everything that they wanted, but everybody had what they needed. Think about what the Apostle Paul told Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. 
and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. I think that's what's in view here. Which is still amazing, considering how many people had come to faith in Christ. Think of how many people visited Jerusalem on Pentecost, stayed in Jerusalem, because like, this is amazing. If I go back to my homeland, there are no apostles there. They're all right here. There's no church in my homeland because the church, New Testament church, is happening right here, right now. So they're staying. Many people were likely ostracized from the community for faith in Christ, ostracized from the synagogue and so on. People probably lost opportunities for employment. So it's amazing to think that you have these people from different places. You have these people who have probably lost jobs or connections to family for resources and so on. And yet no one among them lacked. What an evidence of God's amazing grace among the fledgling church. You say, well, how did this happen? God didn't rain down bread from heaven, though he could have. How did this happen? We're told here in the second half of verse 34, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. Again, note, this is not the result of legislation. This is the result of regeneration. This isn't the result of some sort of compulsion. This was a work of God's grace. I mean, think about what a work of God's grace this was. People were willing to part with large assets, plots of land, vineyards, homes, willing to part with it to see that these new believers would have their needs met. This is amazing. And when they sold those possessions, what did they do? Look at the second half of verse 34 and verse 35. They brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and they laid them at the apostles' feet and they, the apostles, distributed to each as anyone had need. So you have in verse 32 the idea that they are looking at their possessions and they're saying, look, we're not treating it as though it's our own stuff. Yes, private property is a thing, right? Thou shall not steal. And that assumes private property. That's a thing. But we're looking at our stuff as though it's not our own. What's mine is yours. Here in verses 34 and 35, we see them selling their resources. And what they're doing is they're coming to the apostles, who were the leaders of the church at that time. And they're basically saying, look, whatever the needs are, we are trusting that you guys, under the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit, will meet those needs. And that's what they're doing here. They're selling their possessions, they're bringing the proceeds, and they're trusting that through God's wisdom, the apostles would distribute and direct the funds that were given. It's similar in some ways to what would become the practice in the local church, with the church giving and their leadership having the responsibility in conjunction with the diaconate uh, meeting the needs of people in the assembly and the church saying, okay, we are going to pray for the direction of leadership in the church to facilitate the distribution of needs in a wise way, distribution of resources to meet needs in a wise way. Just to give you a little bit of an inkling as to where the story goes, remember the apostles couldn't do this on their own. That's why the proto-diaconate was established in Acts chapter 6. Because they had to commit themselves to the word of God in prayer. They pray, or they seek that God would um, provide seven men full of the spirit and wisdom. And that's where you have the proto-diaconate, the prototypes of deacons in Acts chapter 6. But the people in this context, they were willing to see that the apostles um, would distribute to anyone as they had need. I want you to note, this is also important to note here. They were not distributing so that everyone would have the exact same amount of everything. Okay? 
They did not have some warped view of like equity that we would have in our culture today. We're saying like really the goal is for everyone to have the exact same amount as everyone else. It's not biblical. Even look at Jesus' parable of the talents. He doesn't give the same talents to each person. So it would be a kind of a wrong view to have from the get-go. Um, they were not distributed so that everyone could have the same amount of everything. They were distributed, these resources, to meet the needs of the new believers in the fledgling church. Now, I want to say this as well. I would think that as the apostles sought to see needs met, that they applied wisdom from the Proverbs and they applied principles and commands that we find later on in the New Testament so that this would not be an opportunity for people who were lazy to mooch off of the generosity of others. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, the apostle wrote, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. In the book, Calvin and Commerce, um, the authors, David Hall and Matthew Burton, they make a reference to a practice that took place in New York back in the early 1800s. From 1818 to 1824, via the Society for the Prevention of Pauperism, which was in the city of New York, this group that was committed to see destitution attacked, they provided a kind of annual report for the top 10 reasons why pauperism, poverty, why it existed. Now, uh, the authors note the first three causes were ignorance, idleness, and intemperance. Those are the first three. Then came want of economy, imprudent and hasty marriages, and lotteries, followed by three institutional causes, pawnbrokers, brothels, and gambling houses. So the authors note that the list included personal failing and institutional lures, but then they identified in this 1818 to 1824 study that would go on, these annual reports that were issued, the tenth cause, they said, was charities that gave away money too freely. And the apostles' charge, uh, the authors note, was a, quote, sound principle of accountability that was understood in the early years of poverty relief in the United States. I say that to say, doubtless, the apostles directed funds in such a way to meet needs and not to enable disobedience. Now, with that being said, before we move on, I just want to kind of give some bullet points, some su summary thoughts with regards to the things that we've been considering. I want you to note some of these things I've said already and I'm going to repeat. I want you to know that this giving was voluntary. I want to remind you of that. I want to remind you that the goal was not classlessness but meeting needs. You see that later on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Paul is telling Timothy to instruct those Christians that were in the church who were rich, not to divest themselves of all riches, but to be generous and not to put their trust in the uncertainty of riches, to be rich in good works and willing to share. So the goal is not classlessness, but simply meeting needs. I want to remind you of something I've said already. You could look at Acts chapter 5, verse 4. Private ownership was not abolished. I want to note something else that Bob Deffenbaugh notes, and I think it's excellent, an excellent point. This giving was distinct from the giving that was provided to support the ministry of the apostles, those who preached the gospel and were to make their living from the gospel, to use language from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And there's much more that I could say about this. 
I do want to give some advice to both parents and students um, briefly. I think it's important for parents to have this mindset that from a young age you want to teach your children not to put their trust in the uncertainty of riches and you want to help them understand from a young age that they are stewards and that their stewardship is ultimately stewardship of what belongs to God. And you might remember in the children's bulletin not too long ago when we were in Acts chapter 2 and we saw similar subject matter, there you had the opportunity to have these give, save, and spending jars. And I just want to advise you, and I think it's a good principle for adults, students, and children alike, that whether it's a gift that you get for Christmas, or whether it's a part-time job that you have as a teenager or a young adult, or whether it's you as an adult, are you practicing these principles of giving, saving, and spending in a way that glorifies God? I think the way that I would advise you to do it, and this is the way that we've instructed you before, is that a good baseline as a parent teaching children, or even for you to have in your mind as a Christian, is to say, I want to be like those in the old covenant who would say the first fruits belong to the Lord. That God has given me what I have, and I want to have a mindset that says the first fruits belong to the Lord. Yes, you have freedom under the new covenant. You're not under the old covenant. You have freedom. But I think you look at the Old Testament and you say before the old covenant, there was that 10% practice. And in the old covenant, there was that 10% practice. And I know I'm not under the old covenant, but it does serve as a baseline to help me practice the grace of giving. And you don't have to stay there. You can go beyond there. That's between you and the Lord. But that's a good practice, a good baseline for you to appropriate in your life for your children or for yourself. I think it's healthy. I think when we give, whether it's we give to the work of the Lord or whether it's we give to people interpersonally, you should not see it as some sort of business transaction. You should see it as an act of worship. You have what you have only for a short amount of time. You can't take it with you. And you have a lot of responsibilities that you have to meet. The first fruits do belong to the Lord. You have a responsibility to provide for your family. You have, it's wise to save for the future. A good man lays up an inheritance for his children's children. And, and all of these different things, you have to figure that out. But I think the grid that I just gave you is a good basis that you could use to start. And when you do give, you should, you should not do it under compulsion. Don't do it then. God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want you giving with some sort of compulsion. He wants you reacting to the grace that you've received. And your giving should be an act of worship. That brings us to verses 36 and 37, a specific example here. And Joseph, or as some manuscripts note, Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Now, you have to love what Luke is doing here. This is so um, excellent in a literary way. He's doing something you're going to see him do a few more times or a couple more times in the book of Acts. He's introducing a character, a historical figure, that he is going to bring around later who's going to have a big part in the narrative that's going to come. He's introducing you to Barnabas now, so you get a little bit of an idea who he is. Then he's not going to reference him for a little while, and then you're going to see he's going to have a big part in the Apostle Paul's early ministry and missionary journey and so on. He does that with Philip. You're going to see that happen with Philip. Introduces him in Acts chapter 6, and then we see more of him in Acts 8. He does it with the Apostle Paul, who's there, Saul of Tarsus, holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. You see him for a moment, kind of fades from the scene, and then you get his testimony. That's what Luke is doing here. And this man, 
Um, Joseph, or as some manuscripts note, Joseph, was better known to the apostles, better known to us by the name the apostles gave him, Barnabas. Barnabas. Which is a name, if you look in our text, which is translated son of encouragement. You know you're doing something right when the apostles give you a nickname. You're doing something well when they look at you and they say, oh, this guy, son of encouragement, Barnabas. When you hear that kind of language, son of something, it's usually used to connote the character of a person, right? Sons of thunder was a kind of reference to the sons of Zebedee to say they, they were given to kind of this impetuous anger. If somebody was the son of Belial, they were a son of worthlessness. They were giving their life to idolatry and that which was worthless. Judas was the son of perdition. He was the person who had given himself and was appointed for destruction. But Barnabas was a son of encouragement. I remember when I was a, a relatively new Christian working at No More Securities, a brokerage in the city. Um, I was trying to be a light for Christ. I was, I was writing out these Bible studies. I hope they were good and accurate. But I was writing them out and I'd hand them out to uh, some of my coworkers in the cubicles on that floor. But I tried to work hard so that I could you know, have a uh, testimony that befit my testimony with my lips. And one of the things that was so exciting to me was my um, cousin and the CFO, who was of that um, particular accounting group, um, they ended up giving me the nickname Super Intern. And I just thought that was so cool. I'm like, wow, they gave me a nickname Super Intern. And uh, somebody had referenced that to me, my cousin, not too long ago. And I thought, wow, I remember that. That was so neat. Imagine if the apostles gave you a nickname. And then you can ask the question that one pastor had asked, what kind of nickname would the apostles give you? <laughs> I mean, if they were watching you, right, if they were here and just watching your ministry, what kind of nickname would they give you? And you would hope that it would be something like that. Son of encouragement. Now, the word that's used there in the Greek for encouragement, it could mean consolation. It could mean exhortation. It could mean comfort. And when you look at Barnabas' life, you see that he's basically doing all of that. You look in Acts chapter 11, verses 24 through 23, with exhortation, with words, he's encouraging believers. You can see in his generosity, his actions would lead to comfort and encouragement. This man was a godly man, and he had the nickname Son of Encouragement. I don't know, just me, just me thinking in, in my own mind, uh, I had the application for myself in, in, in simplest of terms. I want to be a son of encouragement. Let me just tell you what that doesn't mean, by the way. That doesn't mean that you're a flatterer or a liar or an exaggerator. Okay? Because some people think encouragement means like saying nice things even when they're not true. That was a great meal. It wasn't a great meal. You know? Don't say, find something nice to say. But don't lie. You don't want to be a liar and think you're an encourager. You don't want to be an exaggerator. That was the best ever. There's nobody better than you. There's a lot of people that were better. I mean, I didn't this or that, but you know, but you, you know what I'm saying is to encourage them, you know what I mean? No, no, don't do that. You want to be an encouragement, yes, but you want to encourage in truth. You don't want to do it to flatter, and you don't want to do it as an exaggerator. You want to do it in honesty. And I want to be a son of encouragement. And I hope that will be a takeaway for you. You look at this man, and we're going to see more about him. We get to Acts chapter 11, we'll see more about him. We see more about him before that too, but uh, I love Barnabas. Um, there's a bit more of his biography here. We're told that he was a Levite of the country of Cyprus, and having land, he sold it. And some of you who know the Old Testament, you might be like, wait a minute. I thought the Levites were not supposed to have land. 
right? The Lord was their inheritance. So how did this man have land? Well, one of the possibilities is the location of the land was likely Cyprus. And maybe what was going on is that the Levites were not to have land within the promised land. And then given the time that had passed and given the fact that he was in Cyprus, maybe he had land at that point and then he, coming to Christ, um, sold that land. That's, uh, I think, a good possibility. In my mind, the best possibility. This man um, was connected to the priestly tribe of Levi. And you might say, in coming to Christ, he joined the new covenant royal priesthood. Um, and he sold that land and he brought it and he laid it at the apostles' feet. He was a son of encouragement who didn't only encourage with word, but he encouraged with deed. Um, a big deed like that, a big act of sacrifice. Now as we close, I, um, I want to tell you, uh, Zinzendorf, in his, in his um, history, he had a moment where he had seen a painting of, uh, of Jesus, depicting Jesus' suffering. And on that painting, there was a description that was below it. And that description below the painting had said the words, I have done this for you, what have you done for me? And it stirred him. And what I want to say to you is that you don't need to see a painting to think to yourselves, if Jesus gave his life for me, how can I leverage my life for him? You don't need a painting to see that. You have it all throughout New Testament texts that are depicting for you the gospel and the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think in light of what we've seen today in our passage, I just want to say to you the following. Think of what you deserve. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. We know that's temporally and eternally. And then think of what you've been given. Your heart's still beating. you got sunshine outside. You have so much that the Lord has given you. And if you are a Christian, you have eternal life that's been given to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of what you deserve and then think of what you've been given. Think of what you should have, as it were, and then think of what you do have. Instead of being on a conveyor belt to judgment, you have been ransomed from the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the Son of God, and you are saved. Think of what you have. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. There's a place that's prepared for you. There's an, there's an inheritance that's reserved and will not fade away. You are destined to see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. This is amazing. So every bit of action and reaction that you have should be in light of the gospel, in light of the grace of God. And you say, Lord, whatever I have, I know I have it for a temporary season. My possessions, I know I have my time this side of eternity for a certain season. I have gifts that you've given me this side of eternity. Lord, I want to leverage them for the gospel. Not out of compulsion, but out of graciousness that is wrought in your heart. Appreciation for the grace of God and the gospel. And I would just say, think of what you deserve. And think of what you've been given. This early church had a glimpse of that. And they lived in light of that. And that should fire up every one of us to live for the Savior who gave himself for us. Let me close by telling you so that everyone in this room knows. This was a reaction of the early church to the great grace of the gospel. It's as though, to use language of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, they saw the Lord Jesus Christ, who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through His poverty might be made rich. He was enthroned in heaven, and yet He took on the form of a servant. He was born, conceived in the womb of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, and He lived that He might die, standing in the place of sinners like us. 
they saw the great grace of God in the gospel, and it's as though they said, if he would do that for us, how could we not give our lives for him? Whatever that looks like. If it looks like using what I have, if it looks like giving away what I have, whatever it is, I am his, and all that I have belongs to him. It's a reaction to the gospel. And if anyone in this room has not come to the gospel, if you have not come to the place where you know that if you were to die tonight, you would be absent from the body and present with the Lord, today is the day for you to make that certain in your heart by the grace of God. I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to know that there is in the, a judgment that is coming. And the wages of sin is indeed death, both temporally and eternally. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and the Son of God in the only way by which a man or woman can be saved from the wrath to come. That he died and rose so that you could be forgiven and live forever with him. There is no other way. It's not by works. It's by faith alone in what Christ has done. And then everything that you do after that is a reaction to that. Let's pray. Father, oh, thank you for this amazing text of Scripture and your amazing grace at work in your people. What a passage before us, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would so work in us that we would all be sons and daughters of encouragement. That we, Heavenly Father, would be those who would be means of comfort, encouragement, and exhortation to others in Jesus' name. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to live with a right view of you as the owner, ourselves as managers, and the things that you've entrusted to us as those temporary stewardships that we are entrusted with and accountable for. And I pray, Father, that our lives would be a reaction to the grace of God and the gospel, that you would help us to have the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in our line of sight, even as it was for the early church, and that you would help us to live in light of a risen Savior who is at your right hand. And Father, I would pray that everyone in this building, upstairs or downstairs, will have come to the place where they believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and they say, I want to profess that publicly in baptism and they get baptized and they communicate that they believe the good news of the gospel, that Christ died for sinners and rose from the grave so that all who believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Father, may it be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.